Hello, this is Matthew Bishop with Driving Change, and today we're talking with Michael Spence, a Nobel Prize-winning economist who spends his time between the University of Bocconi in Milan and Stanford uh, in California. Um, Michael, thank you for joining us. Um, Delighted to be with you, Matthew. I wanted to start really by diving straight into the pandemic and its consequences, particularly for an area that you and I have talked about a lot in the past, which is the future of work. You yeah. know, obviously, we're, we're left with a situation where there's been a dramatic shock to the economy that's caused uh, many people to lose their jobs. What are the prospects for getting people back to work? Well, they're a little grim and tough in the kind of short to medium run. So, I mean, you know, I think there's two things going on. One is the pandemic, uh, you know, situation forced us to conduct experiments that we normally would have conducted, but at a much slower pace. And some of those experiments are going to result in learning uh, that, you know, changes the whole pattern of work, you know, maybe more working from home, maybe a lot more collaboration and maybe less sort of international travel uh, now that people kind of know how to do it and the platforms are getting better at facilitating it. Um, but the, the flip side is that the pandemic economy, both domestically and internationally, is uh, as an adverse shock with respect to distribution. And the easiest way to see that, or the way that kind of hit me, was I looked at a study done at the University of Chicago by a couple of professors early on in the pandemic, and they asked the question, what fraction of work can be done at home in the United States? And the answer they came up with, this is an approximation because they did it really quickly, was one third. It, then they looked at it by geography and sector and the sector ones were really striking. So, you, you know, it, it, it ranged from like 80 some odd percent in the tech and financial sectors down to uh, 4% in hospitality, right? So basically, you know, when you stand back from that, you think 4% of those people can work from home and we had to shut them mostly down in the pandemic. And then there's a serious question that none of us knows the answer to, which is how fast they can come back, which really I think depends primarily not on policy so much as how fast we can get the, the pandemic under control, meaning the prevalence down to the point that people's risk aversion doesn't cause them simply not to go. Um, and that looks like a, it's a process that varies across countries, as you well know, uh, the Chinese have done it more aggressively um, using tools, including digital ones that we're not willing to use. And, um, and we've uh, probably done it more slowly. I mean, I'm, I'm not in the business of handing out praise or criticism, but um, it's pretty clear the process is going more. So I think, you know, the growth patterns and will match the employment patterns and they'll be by sector. And there, there are a set of sectors that are going to struggle to come back. So if we talk first about um, Europe versus America, and then we'll come on to talk about China. Sure. I mean, there were different approaches taken to, to the question of, can we keep people in jobs for as long as possible and hope that right. we come through the pandemic with as much of the existing economy and, and, and workforce in place so that when things do start to grow again, you know, we're not having to rebuild from scratch. Right. How, how are those experiments and different policies played out? Well, you know, there, there are real differences. So the, the similarity is that, you know, everybody basically decided they had to buffer the economy, meaning the household sector and lots of businesses that weren't going to make it, um, buffer the shock. And so, you know, the shock is can be thought of, you know, and I think most people don't think of it this way, but it's a shock to the balance sheet that, you know, there are a bunch of 
parts of every economy that where the people's balance sheets are fragile and thin enough that it's not much of a shock absorber. So what basically governments have done is run big deficits and transferred some, and a fairly substantial amount, to the sovereign balance sheet where it's not perfect, but easier to manage. So that's kind of, you know, that's general. After that, it gets more complicated. So in the United States, we had, you know, a bunch of programs that, you know, we had unemployment insurance, which is not new. Um, we had programs uh, to support businesses and, and programs to support businesses, keeping people on and so on. The Europeans were further down that road well before the pandemic. I mean, the Europeans used this kind of technique um, in the great financial crisis and even before. And what the, what the Europeans do, I mean, it's most obvious in Germany and some of the northern countries, but it's also true in Italy. We have a program that's similar where the state sort of absorbs some of the costs. But, but basically what, what these economies do is in par businesses in partnership with the state um, basically redistribute the costs around. So what happens is that in, you know, in the jobs get um, slimmed down, but fewer people are unemployed, right? So they kind of spread it around. And I think it's actually a pretty sensible way to do it, but it's hard to implement. So if you haven't put it in place beforehand, you know, you can't, you can't snap your fingers and get it done overnight. So does that mean, in, uh, do you think that America is going to suffer from, you know, prolonged higher rates of unemployment because it hasn't had that kind of job sharing scheme? Or is it, if this just drags on at some point, the furloughs and, and other job sharing schemes sort of reach their time limit and, and, and stop in Europe and, and essentially they then catch up on the unemployment rate. I mean, there's too many variables. I mean, so mm. I would say on that, you know, if you held everything else constant, yes, that would make American unemployment higher. Um, but there are still elements in the American economy that, uh, that you know, might produce faster growth than say where I am in Italy, where we have grown at essentially negligibly since the year 2000. So in that, you know, that factors in as well. So I, I mean, I'm not wildly pessimistic, but I, I think what the way I think about it, Matthew, Matthew is there's going to be pockets of real distress, you know, people in sectors that really do struggle to come back and that that'll make unemployment higher than we would like, but it'll also mean that it, you know, it'll be a struggle to move those people into other sectors as the economy recovers. It, so it's mm. partly, you know, structural transition of a certain type, I guess. Now, there's all this debate about what shape the economic recovery yeah. will be. Is it going to be a, a V, a W, a, a square root shaped? <laughs> a, I've even seen a K as one idea where like half the economy goes up and the other half goes down, although I think that's sort of cheating the metaphor a bit. But, I mean, what do you, what, what's your kind of default prediction for how, how the economy grows from here? Um, it, it's, I think maybe the square root is the one that's been used most often in the mm. United States. The French call it a, the wing of a bird. Mm. Uh, so you get a sudden, you know, very big contraction, varies across countries. Then you get a flat period where you're trying to get the uh, virus under control. I'm speaking now mostly mm. about the developed countries, just mm. for a moment. Mm. Uh, and then you get things that can come back fairly rapidly. Um, and so you get something that starts to look like the start of a V, after the after the trough, so to speak, and then you get ones where the headwinds are, you know, a lot bigger, like international air travel. I don't know when people are going to feel safe in 
comfortable doing that. And when all of the bilateral international restrictions are removed, but it doesn't look like it's very fast. Mm. And so, and so that you, so from your point of view, you go down flat up fairly fast and then start to level out. And I think that's where the square root idea, (laughs) (laughs) the square root idea comes from. But I think, you know, I mean, there's lots of flexibility and, you know, exactly what that looks like in any particular case. But I think that pattern is a, is a reasonable guess now that we're six months into this. But the best approach in terms of job creation, you know, normally economists would say, well, let's just get growing again. Is that, is that the right policy at this point? Or is there anything we can do about the growth rate beyond the stimuluses that we've seen so far? I mean, I think the thing we lost track of in America is that the, 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 sec, the, the other best thing you can do is get the pandemic under control. Hmm. Um, because, I mean, to the extent you can, you know, lower the prevalence. So I think the differences we see across countries are, are mainly attributable to that. Um, and so, so and of course, a, a widely available successful vaccine provided people actually have it administered to them. Uh, would would accomplish kind of the same thing, um, mm. or only even better. I mean, that would produce a, mm. you know, a V. I mean, mm. very quickly. Um, but that, but you know, there's hurdles even there. I mean, I, I'm appalled at surveys that I read. You know that, you know, a third of the people say they're willing to do take. You know, have the vaccine injected. Um, I, you know, I don't. I'm not terribly aggressive about this, but I mean, there's a balance between, in, you know, individual freedoms and rights on the one hand and so collective interest. Mm. And the, the simple truth is, my friend Mohamed Larian, I think, invented a useful phrase. He said, in finance, everybody knows what counterparty risk is. And if it's big enough, the system stops because nobody trusts the other party. You and I are both mm. familiar with that. Mm. He said, what we have is human counterparty risk as long as the prevalence is pretty high. Everybody is a risk to everybody else. Mm. And, and so we, we need to do, do things that reduce that risk to restore you know, confidence that you can safely engage in ordinary economic activity, mm. like riding the subway to work and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I mean I, you know, the, we'll get to China, but China mm. used digital tools um, mm. in a way that we probably can't because of, Concerns mm. about data and privacy, and even trust in the government. Mm. Um, but that, but the Chinese are walking around with mobile health certificates that are color coded. You know, so if you're in circulation in China, it means that some system, you know, powered by a fair amount of data, thinks that y- your probability of being infectious is relatively low. Mm. Um, and we basically can't do that. Mm. Uh, put it made in the crude terms, we're all yellow. I mean. Right. And to what extent does a uh, but to what extent does a mask become a sort of proxy for that in a way? I mean, if people are wearing masks, does that does that overcome the counterparty risk sufficiently that well actually normal life could resume to some extent? Well, it certainly helps. I mean, Mm. I'm no expert on the medical and epidemiology side uh, side of this. Mm. I I don't think mask plus social distancing. I think is helpful and, and being outside is certainly helpful. I mean, it seems pretty clear that, you know, the most dangerous situation is lots of people in an enclosed space with poor ventilation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're outside, you're, you know, not gathering in large crowds and you're wearing a mask, uh, 
it's not a perfect substitute for what we were just talking about, but it certainly helps mm. if everybody complies. Now, you brought up China. Um, obviously, it started there, um, but they have got on top of it pretty quickly in the end. Um, what is the economy doing in China? What's happened to job losses, job, uh, you know, and, and then job creation after they started to get the pandemic under control? And what does that tell us about what might happen elsewhere? Well, I would say, if, so China's recovering pretty quickly. Um, they basically had took the hit in the first quarter, mainly, mm. whereas we took the hit in the um, early part of the second quarter. So they, you're, as you said, they're ahead of us. But because they um, were so aggressive about it, I mean, they literally locked down a whole city of 11 million people and, uh, um, and didn't let anybody go in and out. I mean, you can argue about whether that was too brutal or not. But anyway, that's what they did. Uh, and these other tools that we don't have to review again. And I would say China is looking more like a V-shaped recovery. But even there, um, you know, there, there are sectors that are going to be um, stubborn with respect mm -hmm. to recovery. And China is still an economy like many others that is dependent on the rest, state of the rest of the global economy. And so there's mm. nothing they can do about that except, mm. you know, live with it. So it, it's a faster recovery than we're seeing in some other places. Um, but it's, but it's not um, just, just snapping back, mm. but you know, I mean, bits and pieces, anecdotal information from China is that, you know, what you would think of as ordinary, fairly ordinary economic activity is returning like restaurants or, functioning and stuff like that. Mm. And then we've been largely talking about the developed economies. What are you seeing in the developing economies about? And obviously, places like India have sort of suffered extraordinary uh, yeah. job losses as a result of you know, fairly aggressive lockdowns in some places. Um, do, does this set back the path of development for a long I think time? It, I think mm. it does for a while. I mean, developing... So if you think of the resources we went into this with, we're richer. So our balance sheets are a little bigger. Um, the sovereign, the fiscal space is um, bigger in the developed countries than in, than in many developing countries and emerging economies. Um, and the medical situation is, uh, well, I mean, we all get stressed out. I mean, but when we had a real, you know, kind of peak load problem in the medical thing, but anyway, they have less capacity. So in terms of the kind of basic tools that you use, they're, they're less well-armed. Um, and I think the worrying thing, if you look at the um, tracking data for India, um, the economy is coming back, but it's coming back with, uh, with the virus still, um, you know, the confirmed cases growing at a pretty rapid rate, meaning the way the Lamont Academy measures it, it's days to doubling. It's actually becoming a fairly common way of explaining to people how fast this is going. So they're, they're making progress, but it's very slow. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they have doubling days in excess of 20, which is good because if you're under 20, it's it's a lot under 20. It's basically mm. out of control given mm. the life cycle of the virus in an individual. Um, but when I what I worry about, and I'm not sure whether the data are all that good to make mm. sort of significant comparisons across, especially the poorer countries. But what I'm worried about is that the health livelihood trade-off is much starker in poorer parts of developing countries or in just plain poor developing countries and that they'll be forced to open up the economy and then just have to accept mm. uh, 
the consequences in terms of health because the alternative, which is locking down the economy for extended period, is worse, if, mm. if, 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 if I can put it that way. And so that's not necessarily an economic catastrophe, but it's not, it's certainly something that from a health and human welfare standpoint, you, you wish, wish you wouldn't see. A virus will help. Containment, if they can. So the vaccine. A vaccine. Vaccine, yeah. Mm. Not a vaccine. A mm. vaccine. Mm. Or some other therapeutic that really mm. works, if it's widely available, mm-hmm. um, would help. There's some international support on all those fronts, medical, financial, and so on. Um, but I don't think there, it's big enough to blunt the blow um, mm. to a number of countries. And I guess that will mean they will continue to be isolated from the global economy to some extent whilst that remains the case. Well, they will. And then, Mm. you know, and then when, so they got got to deal with this, but they have to deal with the unknown consequences of a fragmenting global international sort of structure again. So so we just don't know at this point. I mean, they, um, for much of the post-war period, you know, these poorer countries lived under this big multilateral tent that the United States and others built. Um, and, it, and it was an, an important element in the opportunity set for growth for many of them. And they still need it, especially the poorer countries. And we, we, so we don't know at this point whether, you know, tensions between the US and China and other tensions, I mean, Europe is not getting along all that well with China right now either, et cetera. Um, if this will produce some kind of, uh, fragmentation that 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 diminishes the opportunity mm. for for the develop for the smaller poorer developing countries i mean we can probably in the united states enter a bilateral world you know mm. uh, where we negotiate with our major trading partners whatever is advantageous to it but that doesn't really work mm. you know for a landlocked country in africa say so i think there's a concern about that i'm not saying the whole thing is collapsed to the point that the opportunities are gone but it, it's getting there. The other thing they have to deal with is that is you know digital technology is moving so fast in the area of automation, um, vision, uh, robotics, you know, and so on. That the labor-intensive, process-oriented manufacturing source of comparative advantage may not be as powerful a driver mm. of the export side of growth that it was in the past, and that means that. Uh, not that the global economy is unimportant, but you know, we have, they have to invent or discover you know, other ways of leveraging the global economy, other sources of comparative advantage, I guess is the way an economist would put it, mm. um, in order to, to achieve the kind of growth that we saw in mm. their earlier in the early starters. So the old Chinese model of just making lots of cheap stuff for the West is not really going to work necessarily anymore. Yeah. So, so what, what, what are, it, it, it may not work or, you know, I mean, I think a lot of countries are hoping that the baton will get passed and the opportunity won't collapse so fast that, uh, that it cuts them off, but it, but it looks like it's at least a threat. Hmm. So we have these two big policy challenges in terms of, what we do about the future workforce and getting people jobs, yeah. one of which is you know this unique pandemic concern about industries where there's high human counterparty risk, as you put it, tourism, you know, air travel, um, and the other is where these digital trends have accelerated by yeah. everyone yeah. being stuck at home and uh, and so forth. What policies you know should governments be adopting to deal with those 
two quite different shocks um, in terms of equipping people to get back to work. Yeah, you're right. So they are different. I mean, I think, you know, you, you, I don't think there's a magic bullet other than vaccines um, that, you know, that are a substitute for getting the, the virus under control. So I, I just, mm. on that side, I'm, I'm pretty clear. Um, you know, and so if you're in a if you're in an industry that is reliant on, you know, yeah. basically having trust and high, you know, low, low counterparty, exposure. low counterparty risk. Yeah, so tourism, you, know, you so just think is if you're a country like Italy that's reliant on on tourism, your only strategy is to make convince people that it's a the virus is gone that, essentially. That it's a safe place, and mm. and you have to convince the domestic folks that it's safe to let them in, mm. right? I mean, they ban, they banned in you know well. Not banned, but you know, <laughs> this summer because mm. we had an outburst in the or outbreak in the south of the, of the United States, mm. the Europeans pretty reasonably said we're not wildly enthusiastic about having Americans come. Uh, mm. but, but that's not a permanent condition. I mean, they are wildly enthusiastic about having us come once <laughs> once we're, you know, mm. safe. So mm. yeah, so I think on that side, that one's. With nothing straightforward, but that one's pretty straightforward, I think. Um, but on the other side, I think you know the lion's share of the discussion, which is not misguided, is is has to do with really ramping up um, our capacity for helping people, you know, change what they do, skills and all that stuff. And I think the digital tools are showing, partly as a result of the pandemic experience, that they're really quite useful in getting that done. Um, and that's going to, from my point of view, that involves collaboration that uh, that involves business, educational institutions, and government. That seems to, you know, we thought that before. I think it's even more true now. Whether we can get that done. Um, is what do you mean open. specifically? I mean, you know, everybody has pieces of the puzzle, right? Mm -hmm. So businesses know, you know, how their business model is evolving and have a pretty good sense of what skills they need. And they may even be pretty good, armed with the right tools, be pretty good educators or partners with educational institutions in getting the job done. Um, and there's, you know, a reasonable amount of evidence that done at a local level, you know, with state governments or local institutions, that these partnerships actually kind of work. Um, but, but the, so I think, you know, that's an important part of the puzzle. Uh, a second piece is, you know, I, I'm not, nobody I, that I know is wildly enthusiastic about sort of a, you know, scattershot approach to sort of international relations and international trade. Um, but we could have a strategy, you know, for dealing with China and for dealing with international trade and institutions and so on, because we know all that has to change anyway. We're not going to go back to where we were before as a strategy that includes, you know, domestic employment to the extent that there's still an issue of, uh, of you know, where jobs reside geographically. And I'm not against that, right? I mean, I, it's, but, but it, you know, done stupidly, it doesn't really help and doesn't really work. And done smartly, I think it could, could add to the, the balance. The, the, the part that seems to me hard is the last thing I wrote about, which is, you know, in the stock, in the, in the public traded equity markets, an increasing part of the value that's being created is, in, in, is being created by the, with intangible capital. And the entities that are doing it are doing it with relatively small number of employees. So basically, 
if you stand back from it, there's a kind of, this is an overstatement mm. in terms of simplicity, but employment is diverging from value creation as measured in that way. And <clears throat> then you ask the question, well, who owns those assets? Because it mean, you know, uh, and the answer is, it's a highly concentrated set of people at the upper end of the distribution and a bunch of institutions. Mm. So it's not, I don't want to oversimplify the picture, but I mean, I think to fully solve this problem, you know, we're going to have to sort of figure out a way to have broader participation in uh, value creation, you know, the turbocharged parts of the, the economy's value creation process. And, and we don't have that now. Mm. Actually, and nobody has it. I mean, so this is a, this is a challenge that no, no country I know of has, has actually uh, addressed effectively. And I mean, if that's right, I mean, it, I mean, and it seems to me it is right that basically what, what's happened with this crisis is an acceleration of a lot of these trends that were towards greater concentration of, of wealth and particularly equity in the future growth um, you know, amongst a small part of the population. I mean, as you say, it does open up the question of, I mean, firstly, like if, if, if most people aren't going to be in jobs that are high value creation, or there won't be in jobs at all, you know, do we need to provide some kind of universal basic income or some equivalent of that to keep people you know, at a sufficient standard of living that even if they're not doing fulfilling meaningful work, they're at least not fighting and rebelling and throwing, bringing society down? Or do we need to actually, you know, the question of much heavier taxation of the wealthy is sort of on the table. But again, I'm, I'm slightly skeptical about how easy it is to pull that off politically yeah, and practically too, I mean, and then and then what do you do when do you take do you nationalize chunks of the of the, of the value creating economy do you create you know see some of the equity and put it into a common fund of some kind i don't know how do you do it well i mean i think that last you know is something that deserves being explored i mean you know these are things that if you get them wrong can really screw up the economy so you, you know I'm, I'm skeptical like you mm. uh, <laughs> on the other hand the sort of trajectory of the distribution of balance sheets in the economy is not very, you know, promising from the point of view of political and social cohesion. So, I mean, I think the most promising avenue to explore, and I don't, I want, I don't want to pretend that this is kind of, you know, a solution because it's mm -hmm. not worked out. Is I think that um, everybody thrives in a in a system that is created by you know, the social contract, the constitution and the government and, you know, and its investments in people and technology and science and so on. And I think we probably need for, to look for a way for to have the public broadly, maybe through the government, um, be a kind, be passive kind of owners of that, uh, of that. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you, I mean, um, and that's a little different from taxation, I think, right? Because um, taxation has been the traditional way that we've done that. Yeah, taxation is the traditional way we've done it, and you know, and I'm, I think we're probably, depending on the outcome of the election, going to do more of it. But, mm. um, and I don't mean to set that aside, but I, but I think you know, exploring this other avenue as a complement to that um, is a worthwhile idea. I mean, I don't, you know, we've had bits and pieces of this. I remember the late James Tobin put forward a widely discussed, not eventually not implemented proposal um, to finance college uh, 
with essentially loans where you paid back based on, you remember this, on the frag, you know, basically if you, what you committed to was a, a very small fraction of your future income. Um, and so people who became artists and musicians, some of them became fabulously wealthy and they paid a lot. And some other people who went into the nonprofit sector and did a lot for their fellow human beings or citizens, you know, didn't pay so much. I mean, it, it, again, the mechanics of these things need to be worked out. And, you know, there's all kinds of moral hazard and other <laughs> problems that, you know, have to be thought through associated with that. But I think that it's the right, it's a time when creativity in these dimensions, um, as well as, you know, responsible, effective use of the existing tax system is a good idea. Mm. And do you, are you optimistic that we're going to see that? Because, I mean, I think one of the things I was struck by is, you know, people were aware of the threat that digital posed to maybe to a lot of traditional jobs and the traditional middle class employment. But there didn't seem to be a lot of policy reaction to that. You know, might the crisis shock us, shock the world's governments into doing something more ambitious and uh, creative? It might, um, you know, I, I, it kind of depends on where you are. I mean, I think because what the challenge is, is, is it varies, you know, so I mean, I mean um, in, in the United States, I think we still have reasonably powerful engines for generating, you know, innovative new economic activity. And we don't, and we don't want to destroy those. So we, 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 we just have to, to address the problem. Is it very likely we'll address it? You know, I mean, I, I, um, in an environment in which a significant subset of the population feels with some good reason that they were kind of abandoned over the last few decades and don't, I'm, I'm going to put this mildly, I mean, <laughs> and dislike the elites and mm. the, you know, and the people on the coasts and a whole bunch of other versions of that. Um, it's a little hard to see that that, regardless of electoral outcomes, that that turns into something in the short run that looks like a constructive, you know, dialogue about how to achieve inclusiveness. I mean, it, you know, I'm just trying to be realistic. I mean, I think in Europe, at least on digital, um, the challenge as perceived here is that they're way behind. Uh, and so they, you know, they need more platform companies, they need a cloud computing system, you know, that goes along with their policies with respect to data. Um, they need opportunities for very talented, innovative young people um, to sort of build companies with supportive ecosystems around them so they don't have to go to New York or Washington or California, et cetera. Um, so I, I mean, I think the, the challenge there is kind of modernize, digitize, and um, mm. and get back somewhere near the forefront. And of course, that has consequences for growth. So it's a, it's, it's mm. a slightly different, um, at least perception of the challenges in Europe is a more, if you just look at Gini coefficients, it's a more egalitarian operation. It's not exempt from the pressures that we've seen. You know, David Autor and others have documented that that job and income polarization to varying degrees has occurred across a broad swath of the, the developed world. So I mean, I, you know, that, mm -hmm. and, and that's digital and globalization and whatnot, but they've, 
they've had we've had policies in Europe that have muted the impacts of that to a greater extent than say the UK or the US. But Europe hasn't had a great record of catching up on on these sort of innovation deficits, has it? And so I suppose yeah. it does still. I mean, I'm struck as we talk that I mean it's by no means a foregone conclusion that you know in two or three years' time, however we think about the relative effectiveness of the policy response to the pandemic in America and Europe, that America may still emerge, you know, with stronger economic prospects than, than Europe over the decades ahead. Absolutely. I mean, Europe has a kind of unification agenda that's still there. Um, people are kind of a little optimistic because of the emergency fund, you know, the 750 um, mm -hmm. uh, euro uh, emergency fund because it's the mm. first, and was uh, financed with European debt, right? Uh, so people are saying, well, this is really the first time, unlike the great financial crisis where we, where Europe has taken the position that we're kind of in this together as opposed to, you know, if you're in trouble, it's your fault, get out of it kind of, mm. uh, kind of attitude. Now, whether that turns into some, more momentum on a broader front, um, but the place, you know, still is kind of fragmented uh, to some extent linguistically. Um, you know, they, they need uh, the institutions, the European level institutions, the, not bureaucratic ones, but ones that really pump energy into the system. You know, the way the NIH does in, in America in our biomedical um, complexes and so on. So, yeah, we got a long way to go was the mm. bottom line. And we're pretty far behind. So one last question. The audience for this is this primarily policymakers. If yeah. the, what's the number one policy recommendation you would have for policymakers around the world as they think about how they give their people the best chance of having good work in the years ahead? On the, on the work question, I, I guess I would say, if I'm allowed three points, right? Mm -hmm. get, get the virus under control. Recognize we have a common problem and cooperate with each other on you know, sort of finding solutions, you know, including technological ones, and then focus, skills, jobs, and retraining. Good, well, on that, sure. practical, on that practical positive note, uh, Michael Spence, thank you very much for talking uh, with me and driving change uh, today. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew, enjoy it.